Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking with Craig Allingham and I'll give you his bio in just a second if you don't know who he is. But the title of this podcast uh, is Helping the Evidence to Work, Sticky Health Messages for Men. So originally I touched um, base with Craig in order to see if he wanted to talk about specific issues in men's health. Um, But then I found out he's actually very well known for discussing how to communicate um, men's health issues with men. So it was an excellent conversation that we had and I'm really excited to share it with everyone. I want to apologize because I have had to try to edit it a little bit because Skype just kept messing up on me today. So hopefully in the future I will try Zoom. Fingers crossed it's a little bit better. Um, And yeah, I just uh, hope that you guys enjoy learning uh, how men think and how they process information and how we should um, build our rapport with them in order to get messages across. Now I am going to read his bio because I really liked it and some of the stuff that we discuss a little bit later has to do with some of the info in his bio. So Craig is an experienced sports physiotherapist who dragged his rehab skill set for elite athletes into men's health almost 20 years ago. Frustrated at not being able to help his dad overcome incontinence due to radical prostatectomy, Craig spent years refining a pelvic floor training program for men and testing with clients in his clinic. Results were encouraging with almost every man improving to some degree and many becoming fully continent. As a bonus, many also improved their erectile function. This clinical research in bunny ears was done well before the advent of real-time ultrasound and quality investigation into the subtleties of how the male pelvic floor functions. Happily, the clinical tools were well supported by the subsequent research. Realizing we had too few pelvic floor physios interested in or working with men, Craig undertook two projects. Firstly, he wrote a book for men who couldn't or wouldn't attend pelvic floor physio to help them navigate their own recovery following prostate cancer treatment, called the Prostate Recovery MAP, MAP standing for Men's Action Plan. The link for that will be in the show notes. Um, It's now in its second edition and fourth printing. Secondly, he filled a perceived gap in our professional development with the first Mastering the Martians workshop on the male pelvic floor in 2015. This one-day workshop has grown into a two-day event and has been held five times in Australia with participants coming from all states, New Zealand, UK and Ireland. Almost 200 physios have received a basic level of education and experience with assessment and treatment for male incontinence and erectile dysfunction following treatment for prostate cancer. Craig has retired from clinical treatment while he continues to write and teach in the men's health field as well as working as a business consultant for allied health practices. He holds an adjunct appointment as assistant professor with Bond University. His other interests include playing jazz, saxophone, beekeeping and motorcycle touring, none of which I got into that I just realized now, damn. Um, He also enjoys red wine, dark chocolate and cheese, but who doesn't? So enjoy the podcast, guys. Thank you so much for, for giving me your time and Again, when I threw the idea out there of what I wanted to cover and discuss, I haven't been to Mastering the Martians yet, so I wasn't exactly sure what you yourself covered because the whole area of men's, I don't treat a lot of men, I treat some men for um, for pain, I don't do any prostate issues, so that area is a little bit muddled to me. And then when you sent the message and I spoke to Fiona about the communication and I thought oh my gosh that is perfect because mm. wow I mean I'm not a man as well so <laughs> I really exactly. need to learn you will learn things that's right yes so um I let's I'm, do it yes I I'm really interested I have read your bio but I'm still really interested on like you seem to be a man of all trades as in you 
were a clinician, you've dealt with sports teams, you're doing communication. How, how did you get into all this? I am curious. That is my superhuman power. Uh, I constantly like to look at new things or old things in a different way. Yeah. And I don't, it's not that I get bored, but I just get interested in other areas. So my career has been a steady progression of of looking at things and asking why aren't they happening and seeing if we can make them happen and then getting a, a, a collegiate body of similarly minded professionals who say this is fun, this is good, this is making a difference to people, I'm, I'm really going to keep this going and I say excellent, now what else can I focus my attention on? So I tend to be a serial entrepreneur in the effort department, but I'm not so sure I'm the serial entrepreneur in terms of the mega income that other entrepreneurs are, are, are generating, but that's all right. I'm comfortable with that. Yes. I've missed that one too. Don't worry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think we're hamstrung by our actual profession. Yeah, it? yeah. Um, so, as you say, I, I started off, uh, you know, my, I remember my, my first, in the final year of physio, I spoke to a, a colleague of mine named Steve Sandor, and now we're in fourth year physio, and he said, what do you want to do uh, in your career? And I said, I, I'm not sure. What do you want to do? And he said, I want to be an Olympic physio. And I said, oh, yeah, good, good idea. I like the sound of that. I want to be in a physio for the Olympic team too. Um, and he went on and did other things, but I ended up getting the Olympic physio job eventually. So um, that was sort of the quest of one thing, tick that box, well, what next uh, sort of thing. So. But the skills I learned along the way and the, the networks I developed uh, did me a lot of good when, as I said, as you mentioned in the introduction, that I I encountered a problem with my dad that I couldn't help him with. You know, I'd been fine with his rotator cuff problems, I'd been fine with his low back pain, but when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and subsequently had surgery, I had no concept of how to help him with his journey. And he was helpless, I wasn't much better, and having watched him struggle and, and, and then his cohort struggle of similarly aged men who are going through this process. I said, there's got to be something in sports rehab, muscle training that can help these guys regain their continence or improve their continence levels and maybe even help with their erectile function loss if they would like to do so. What, what, um, what year are we talking? We're talking just after the, uh, well, he, he got sick in, in 95, he died in 2000 and Sorry. I was all focused on the elites up until 2000 and then uh, so it was after that I put that sort of last of the elite sport to bed and thought well I've gone as far as I'm going here four Olympic Games is enough uh, I'm going to look at men's health and see how we can make that work so I retreated into my clinic and uh, and started letting the local urologists and GPs know that I was accepting incontinent post-radical prostate men for, for treatment and for want of a better pun, the floodgates opened. Um, there were many coming, and they were desperate to get some help from somebody. Wow. So you've been doing this long before social media came, and people are now discovering that other people can treat this, and they sometimes I feel yes. like maybe, and with people understanding a little bit more about research, you look back at you know, some research articles, and you're like, oh, my God, this is 20 years old. Where have I been? Yes. Well, I, I, yeah, pod, the word podcast hadn't been invented. In fact, the internet was barely 10 years old. So yeah. it was it was well ahead of, of, of that. And, and again, it was a curiosity. And, and because of that, because things were primitive, the surgery was primitive, the guy's expectations were fairly low, I really had no idea where I was starting from. But I applied basic uh, muscle training and physiological principles that I would drag from elsewhere and just, okay, can what happens if this guy does this exercise at this repetition at this intensity for six weeks what happens to his cotton oh that didn't work so well let's try a different dose with the next guy let's let's get that guy back onto this program which seems to be working well and why didn't this guy improve at all what was his problem and talk to the surgeon about the surgery and, and you know, how much damage was done and try and correlate all those sort of random factors without much help. Now, Grace Dory in, in the UK, to her credit, she was ahead of the game there. She was already doing a lot of work in men's health and did some early research on on um, pelvic floor training for men. But unfortunately, she'd come from a women's health background, I guess. That's not the unfortunate part. The unfortunate part is she, was, she didn't really differentiate well between the elements of the male pelvic floor because we didn't know what they were. Um, and so she would do a lot of work and measure the outcomes based on anal manometry. So she put in rectal probes and, and, and pressure sensitive gauges and, and measure the, um, 
uh, the pressure that could be exerted by the Levada Ani, um, but as it turns out now, that bears little relationship to what controls the man's urinary system. Uh, really good for bowel dysfunction and constipation and and, uh, and incontinence fecally, but it turned out that her, her excellent work didn't transfer to urinary incontinence. There was a bit of an overflow, a bit of a smudging of the, the engrams, so there was some um, complementary contraction of the anterior pelvic floor of the men, but it was never focused on urinary intent. Yeah. And so along this journey, you you were saying that you really like to be able to discuss with health professionals the differences in how we need to communicate with men and how they listen and how they are going to be taking on board all of this treatment that we're going to be attempting to give them. So how does that all play exactly. in? All right, that, that, that is my pet pet topic at the moment. So thank you for asking. The, so we'll start with a simple question. If we, and, and apologies to anybody who's listening who, who finds me a bit of a dinosaur if I refer to genders as only being two. Um, I know in these enlightened times of gender fluidity and transgender migration, there are a whole range of genders. But for the purposes of our discussion today, I think it's more simple to just say male versus female and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work from that. And then if you are dealing with a different sort of population with a lot of fluidity or transgendering, then maybe we can talk a little bit about that towards the end. But you'll be able to extrapolate from this data in that direction. So. When a man and a woman, stereotypical man, woman, are asked what is health, are they thinking about the same parameters when they give an answer? For example, do men talk about or think about health in the same way as do women? And from the research and certainly from working with, with men over a long period of time, they don't link, tend to think of health as fit for purpose. If they're fit enough to do a particular activity or fit enough to go to work and go to sport and play and do their fun recreational things, and they can do those functions at a level they choose to uh, find satisfactory, they deem themselves to be healthy. Whereas women are a bit more sensitive to the more subtle messages their body sends them. The somatic signals associated with um, a, a monthly cycle that changes sensations and experiences and perceptions of the world uh, and with major hormonal changes that happen throughout their life, some of which um, are associated with just the aging journey. So you've got puberty, of course, and you've got menopause at the other end and some of the hormonal adventures that are, that are interposed like pregnancy, which is a huge shifting of, of female hormones. So men, women are, are really sensitized to those changes in their body, whereas men, we uh, we have our puberty and we have a thing called the male menopause or the andropause, which is basically a steady decline in testosterone, usually after the age of 50. Um, but beyond that, we don't have a lot of these other signals coming to our body on a regular basis that are telling us, are we well or are we not, or are, we, are our, our internal sensations shifting? And even if we do get them, we've been trained by fathers and teachers and sports coaches and various other male role models through our adolescence to ignore them, to put aside any pain or inconvenience or, or dysfunction and to press on regardless, to continue to turn up at work, continue to turn up at sport, uh, continue to, to take risks, if you like. Um, I'm always amused as I said, I used to travel with, with elite teams and I, and I went with the Australian baseball team to, to Taiwan once for a national, uh, an international baseball event. Canada wasn't there, so <laughs> I'll just mention that because we won. <laughs> if Canada was there, we probably wouldn't have. But probably. The, so the Four Nations tournament there and we get there and my job is, is, is health and, and, and physio for the team. We don't travel with a doctor. So um, have the talk okay no drinking water that doesn't come out of a bottle that's a sealed bottle no uh, street food particularly salads that could be washed in an unfiltered water we're back in the early 90s here so you know taiwan was not quite as sophisticated it is now and gave them the whole talk about staying healthy on tour and report any illnesses so we can segregate you from the others etc well that was all good thank you very much great so they had a meal at the hotel and of course they wanted to go out and explore the city of Taipei and all its glory and after hours off they wander they come back and they tell me these fabulous stories of they went to Snake Alley now Snake Alley is uh, an Asian 
uh, a, Taiwan, a Taipei um, street of street food, and Snake Alley specializes, as you would think, in snake products. And being you know, young men on the loose and in a cohort uh, that are focused on physical performance, they wanted to prove their masculinity by the ultimate snake alley test of drinking oh. the fresh blood from a freshly slaughtered snake. Oh. So they all competed with each other to do this. Now, I had, to their credit, I had not specifically said, do not go out and drink fresh snake blood. <laughs> but, um, I'd, I'd limited myself to water and salads and, and sort of basic unidentified food stuff but they so risk taking is inherent in the masculine stereotypical psyche and risk taking extrapolates to taking risks not only with drinking snakes blood but to drinking to to drinking anything basically and to to not listening to your body's health messages and pressing on regardless you obviously were not brought up uh, in Canada as a, as a boy becoming a man so you wouldn't have been subject to the male health hegemonic constructs, of course, you know, the social constructs of developing masculinity. And the research has come out in the US and therefore will apply to Canada, will apply to Australia, that young women, as young girls, as they become women, the pressures that society puts on them and the expectations of their behavior result in predominantly healthy behaviors. So young females are typically brought up as nurturers, as protectors, as, as you know, the, you know the, the ones who are going to ensure the survival of the, the next generation. And uh, whereas the young men, the constructs of masculinity that are shown to them, demonstrated to them, are respected by other males, pretty much undermine health. They work actively against health. And I'm talking about such, such constructs as... Um, Taking risk, risk-taking behavior, uh, physical and emotional strength is a typical behavior. So, so they will like to beef up. They like to to do do aggressive type things. Um, excessive use of alcohol and risk-taking and and you know alcohol and other recreational drugs. Mm. Um, and they will urge each other on as a peer group. These young men, and I'm talking sort of anywhere from 15 to 25, they would urge each other on. And the one who's perceived to take the biggest risk is considered to be the most heroic, most epic masculine man in that uh, in that peer group, the alpha male, if you like, if he survives. Hmm. So that can be driving behavior, sporting behavior, you know, loudish behavior at a club, you know, taking drugs, getting drunk, throwing up, getting up. I mean, Mad Monday. We've just recently had the end of the National Rugby League season and other football codes, and so those teams are no longer playing. It's a rite of passage that those men in the team or some of those men in the team will go out and be absolute idiots and, and drink too much and, and, and expose themselves and, and, and do you know, anti-social behavior because that's their concept of masculinity. Um, so that, as a health practitioner, dealing with men who have come through that, that social socialization process means that when we present them with health-friendly information to actually help them do their work, their play, their sport better and more effectively, they have a natural resistance or bias against making those changes because it runs against their concept of masculinity and the stereotypical evidence of that. It does happily change a little bit with age in that the 15 to 25 year old male age group are risk seekers they will go out and do risky activities because it will reward them with masculinity points from their peer group and maybe even from the generation beforehand. Now, the, the fathers, the uncles, the, the sports coaches, the, um, the employers, who knows, but older men who are deemed to be good men, you know, masculine men, can, uh, can say, yeah, you're, you're a bit of a larrikin, but gee, I like you. And, and uh, that, what you did the other night was you know, epic. Uh, well done. I'm glad you lived. But as men age and go into a, a, a career building, family building, asset protecting, nurturing their own their own tribe, into that middle age side, risk becomes something that they recognise and balance with other aspects of their life. So they'll take less of the more risky risks, but they still like to have a night out with the boys, or still prone to drinking too much, or undertaking social drugs, or risking their health with 
poor work-life balance. It's not just things you ingest, it's uh, things you can partake in, you know, just not spending enough time with the kids and the, and the family not uh, and becoming so engrossed in their in their career or, or other aspects of their life that they, they lose the balance. So that risk management would be better. And the final stage when, when men are older, and darn it, I'm in there myself now, risk is something to be minimized and avoided because risk at the age of 60, 65, it becomes a risk of, of lead to a health change that may result in an early death. Yeah. So over time, we view men view risk differently. So when we're talking about prostate cancer and, and working as a physio, looking at, after the prostate um, health and, and function and, and urinary function of men who've had prostate cancer treatment, they're generally in this, I want to minimize the risks and improve the outcomes um, mentality, which is good because what we do would, wouldn't go down a trick with the 25-year-olds. So we pitch risk accordingly. But if you're dealing with young men in sporting teams at the age of 24 and you're telling them something's going to be dangerous, you know, it's going to be really hazardous to go back and play uh, to play, you know, rugby with this uh, missing ACL. He'll say, well, yeah, I'll be a hero if I do that. He's computing that risk. That risk is good for me. That shows me I'm a man's man, so I'm prepared to go back and put it on the line for the team. And if the knee blows out, the knee blows out. I'll deal with that down the track. So whereas an older man would be hopefully somewhat wiser and have different priorities. So should we be approaching the younger men if they needed to be aware of their pelvic floor as like, oh, be careful because, you know, if you do your pelvic floor, you know, you might end up in some dangerous situation to, I don't know, to motivate them exactly. to want to be aware? Exactly. You need to, well, if, if we're doing general health and pelvic floor is part of your general, but any any public health message, no smoking, don't do drugs, don't drive too fast, wear a seatbelt, um, be nice to each other, try and solve your conflicts without violence, any of those public health messages that are based on um, um, declaring it to be risky and therefore avoided are, are going to fail mm. with most of those young men. So it yeah. needs to be more along the lines, here's a challenge. Yeah. I bet you cannot give up smoking. I bet you cannot restrict your alcohol. Let's see if you can go for all of July without drinking alcohol because only a strong man could do that, and I don't think you're strong enough. So it gets back to threatening his masculinity <coughs> the risk as opposed to the activity. I do that with my seven-year-old girl. <laughs> all right. And <laughs> that'll yeah, – well, at the age of seven, male and female, they're much, <laughs> pretty much the same, same yeah. sort of – social construct it's not until the period hits that they all go different they all go haywire the men when the boys when the testosterone kicks in but uh, so that's which we can't do that's part of the sexual differentiation program so if we bring that back that 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 sort of and then I'm, I'm not just making this this is based on some research that's been done in in, uh, in uh, australia as well as overseas this is sort of concept of masculinity constructs and and how it interferes with the receiving of health messages and so as a health practitioner dealing with any male, but we'll, we'll sort of keep it on this sort of prostate recovery side of things for, for this point of view of the, the discussion today, is what filters has this man got, the patient in front of you, what filters do I need to squeeze the information on health through to see if it can stick? Because uh, what I'm keen to do is there's, there's an increasing body of objective, good quality evidence of how to work with men's continence retraining. And there's the bloke here who knows nothing about it, who's just had his prostate dealt with, whether it's been surgically removed or whether it's been irradiated by external beam radiotherapy, and he's incontinent, and he wants to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, uh, from incontinent to continent, from pads to pad-free. He's not that interested in the research, but he just wants you to take him on that journey and so we've got to get the evidence base to stick enough in his system, in his mental approach to health, so that the evidence has a chance to work, which means, one, he has to understand it, and two, he needs to apply it at the right dose, and he needs to persist with it, even though he initially doesn't think it's working. Um, so getting the evidence to stick is all about the communication still. The evidence is the evidence. That's what we're going to give them. But what we want is to, to stick and change his attitude, his behaviours, and his outcomes um, so he gets the best result. That means we've done our professional job and it means he, he gets a better outcome and he's going to recommend us and he's going to be more functional in his community and his family and his workplace and he's going to be a lot happier. And the other mental secondary issues of anxiety and depression are, are sort of going to be put aside because now I'm not relying on continence pads. The 
Um, so here are the filters. And this is the interesting thing. And this was a paper, uh, research, was it a book? It doesn't matter, but it was, it was some stuff that really explained it clearly to me. And I, and I think it's important to understand, particularly if you've never been a bloke, to work out how this works. Yeah. Um, so when a, a man receives uh, incoming health information, he puts it to two sets of filters, internal mental filters. The first one he applies is risk assessment. In other words, is, and we mentioned risk already, um, is the information I'm getting about my condition, my prostate cancer, my sprained ankle, my torn hamstring, my ACL injury, my, my Parkinson's disease, whatever it is, is it, what I'm hearing about this condition, is it severe or potentially severe? Is it a nasty, is it life-threatening? Is it an inconvenience? Is it something that will get better if I just ignore it or is it something I need to deal with? So he puts it through a severity risk assessment. Is this a nasty piece of work? Well, prostate cancer is a nasty piece of work. Um, and the second part of his risk assessment is, yes, it might be a nasty condition, but am I susceptible? Me personally, in my current uh, lifestyle and, and age group, am I at risk of the severity of this condition? So is the, is the condition nasty and are, am I on that list? We know that seven out of ten men are going to have prostate cancer through their life. We know that you know the leading cause of cardio of death for men is cardiovascular disease, and we know that uh, men are involved in a high number of, of motor vehicle accidents. But every man who gets prostate cancer has a heart attack or a motor vehicle accident assumes that these things happen to other men. Hmm. None of them thinks they are in that group of 70% uh, that are going to have this incidence. But statistically, epidemiologically, seven of them have to have it. So you line 10 blokes up, you say, which three are not going to have these episodes? And I'll put their hands up. They just don't get the susceptibility issue of uh, that they can be. So, um, so he put this through his filter. Okay, is it a nasty condition and am I susceptible? So for prostate cancer, susceptible will mean have I got the gene for prostate cancer? Did my dad, uncle, brother have uh, prostate cancer diagnosed? Yes. Have I got any of the other comorbidities that accompany prostate cancer, like an increased girth beyond 95 centimeters at the umbilical level? Have I got hypertension? Um, has my nutrition, is that good? Do I eat a lot of fruit and vegetables or do I eat a lot of animal fat? And, uh, you know, I like to grill it. To, it looks like a you know a black piece of, of charcoal on the grill. So these lifestyle factors that can trigger his genetic diabetes, his lifestyle habits, his smoking habits, for example, help him with his risk assessment to one understand that it's severe and understand that it's severe and it applies to him particularly. If we're looking for preventative health, because he's already diagnosed, he's worked out it's nasty, and obviously I was susceptible. The second part of the filter relates to efficacy. And I'm not saying this is only for men, but we have a very strict filter on this. Efficacy is the treatment that my physio is recommending for incontinence or erectile dysfunction or, any, or low back pain or whatever. Is the treatment that he or she is explaining to me, does that make sense to me? And can they provide me with information that shows that this treatment is likely to be effective? Hmm. So is the response going to be effective? And if he says yes, that it gets that through his filter. He says, yeah, that sounds right. You say, sound, that sounds brilliant. You know, do these exercises, eat differently, get more activity, get some stress management in, whatever. But his next filter, and this is a brutal filter, this one, is his self-efficacy filter. That sounds brilliant. All those treatments sound absolutely doable, but I don't think I can. I don't think I have the mental resource. I don't think I've got the financial resource. I don't think I've got time. I'm too busy. I don't think I can give up alcohol. I don't think I can give up cigarettes. So he doesn't want necessarily verbally express that back to the, the health practitioner, but he's going through and saying, yeah, yeah, it sounds great, but I love smoking. I love red wine. I love cheese. I love being lazy. I, mean, you know, I, I don't want to give up all these things I enjoy or even shave them back a little because I'm not convinced I can do it, so why should I deprive myself of enjoyment now on the remote possibility it might make a difference down the track? So he's bargaining it off and his self-efficacy rates as low. So if his risk assessment rates low, either on severity or susceptibility, and his efficacy or his efficacy rates low, either on the response, what he expects from the treatment, or his self-efficacy rating, his filter, his health information filter, 
I call it the ego filter, <laughs> constricts and doesn't let any more information in. He stops listening. And you or I can grab it on as much as we like, and he may even keep turning up for treatments, but we're not penetrating the filter, and he's not making the changes. He's not doing the exercises. He's not listening to the advice. He's not making changes that we suggest. Because he goes into his three main uh, coping strategies, which is denial. It's not that bad. I'll be all right. It'll get better. It's, I know somebody who recovered from this. Um, avoidance. Well, if you're going to just keep talking about these nasty things, I'm going to stop coming um, um, or withdrawal. I'm not going to do the program. And uh, so he will withdraw back into his own his own life. So we've lost him. In terms of making an effective difference to his health outcome, we've lost him. And I have lost countless men over the years hmm. through not understanding how they filter the information. And I come in with this holier-than-thou attitude I'm a sports physio, I'm physically active, I'm not overweight, I understand health, and I lecture him about all the things he's done wrong since he was 15 and how they brought him to see me with prostate cancer or diabetes or cardiac rehab or low chronic low back pain, whatever it might be. And I tell him all the things he's done wrong and he says, how dare you, in his own head, and he closes his filter and he doesn't come back. So how do we open the filter holes? Yeah. Um, mm. Well, we, we, we need to, and, and it gets back to your basic training of establishing rapport, is to understand him better as, as a person before you start telling him how to be a better person. Ask him uh, what he's good at, what he loves doing, uh, how his family is, what job he does, and, and does he like it, and, and what got him into that, and how long was he doing it. And so you spend that first 15, 10 minutes of the first consultation not just assessing his clinical markers and, and looking at his, his reports and his PSA levels and his Gleason scores, but say, look, let's put all this aside. And physically, I do. I put it down. I say, look, tell me about yourself. How did you get to here? What, where, where did you go to school? How did you meet your wife? And we start to fill in some really important milestones in his, in his career, and I find out what his interests are, and that will now give me – uh, a touch point to always go back to if I feel I'm losing him, if he's going into denial, avoidance, withdrawal, I say, look, been out in the boat lately? Done any kayaking this week? How's, how's your dog? Um, whatever these important things are in his life, we go back there, find a safe space, chat about that for a while, relax the filter, relax the barriers, and then we come back to the incoming health messages and I might just shape them and massage them a little bit differently to hopefully get him listening so I can get to the evidence and make it stick uh, and get him on board the program. Because if we can get these uh, through risk assessment and efficacy assessment and he's still listening, we can make a difference. And that's that's it. You, you get them on board and they are your greatest advocate for you and your business and your program and they will sing you out loud and proud around the place. Um, and you will have had patients where you've done that. It just clicks and everything's mm. easy. You got through, and you'll have other patients who you just think, man, why won't he or she? Why won't they listen? Why don't they get this? And we haven't got that connection. Another therapist might get it. You know, it might be a different approach, different, similar histories. Um, you know, I'm a bloke. They're a bloke. I the thing I've got with the prostate cancer men is my dad died from prostate cancer. I, I haven't got it, but I've been done. One of the things I've done recently, and it's because I'm, I'm, I'm writing another book for, for prostate cancer men, is I've signed up to a, a prostate cancer support forum online, not to contribute so much as to listen to what their concerns are, to, to, to read the stories of these men and their wives and their daughters. I haven't had, oh, maybe a couple of sons have written in, but mainly it's the females in the family, if it's not the sufferer himself, who post the things and, and they're just... You know, crying for help on the decision-making process. What treatments should I have? What are the side effects going to be? What do these tablets do? How do I sleep better? Why have I got pain here? And the, and 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 this is just keeps coming out. And I think you poor guys, you're so lost of healthcare uh, that you're relying on each other's support, remote support of anonymous people who are in the same journey to to fill in the gaps for you. Because obviously the urologists and the radio oncologists and the, the physios and the physical therapists, whoever's looking after them are not giving them enough of that information and it's not sticking. So um, I'm getting a bit of insight into what their fears are, which is, is very useful, uh, certainly in producing this next book for them. So, sorry, how, how is this, it may have when Skype chopped out, but how is this book different than the one that you already have? Is that what you're asking about the book? 
Sorry, Skype keeps um. We looking at. Yeah, I know. It's not yeah, very I'm, nice right now, I'm is it? Oh, it, we, it's the probably the NBN. <laughs> it probably is. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, well, but yeah, how is this book different than the yeah. other one you have? So the previous book, the the book I've put out, uh, the prostate recovery map, that's for men who are already incontinent and have erectile dysfunction as a result of treatment for their prostate disease. So they've undergone surgery or radiotherapy or or adjuvant deprivation testosterone therapy um, to manage their their tumours. They arrive with incontinence issues or about to be if they if we're seeing them preoperatively. This book I'm working on at the moment, and, and how are we going for time? So let me, let me I went to the, um, the American Urological Association mega conference in Boston last year, and active surveillance is becoming an increasingly popular or increasingly appropriate treatment plan for men, uh, particularly in the States, and uh, active monitoring, it's called in the UK, and active surveillance here in, in Australia. Different from watchful waiting, a bit more watching and a bit less waiting but of all the urologists and and uh, specialists who spoke on active surveillance they were really 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 technically skilled in the surveillance what would the psa score have to do to show a risk change what would the gleason score of aggressiveness of the tumor have to show what would the free versus bound PSA ratio in the bloodstream. So they had all these diagnostic tests and, and, and parametric um, MRIs, et cetera. So they had all this monitoring, all this surveillance tools, which they would use on a regular basis while they waited for a low-risk um, prostate cancer-suffering man to show changes that would need move them onto a curative treatment path. So active surveillance in the short term, but none of them, not one in all these speakers mentioned the active part. They were only about surveillance. None of them gave any thought to what can a man do in his own life to reduce the chance that his prostate cancer will become more aggressive, will progress to a larger, more more vicious tumor that would need treatment. And what can, I do, can he do in his life to lower the risk of that happening, to slow the growth of his tumor? And it turns out there's a lot of evidence out there that show different things that can be done to put the active into active surveillance instead of just the surveillance. And this will include things like reducing your systemic levels of inflammation. Um, so reducing the level of uh, cytokines and other inflammatory markers, um, serum negative protein in your body that tend to be cancer drivers, which tend to be autoimmune disease drivers, which tend to be sticky artery drivers. So a whole lot of other health comorbidities, but just how do you manage your inflammatory environment? So, and that involves one, definitely not smoking. Secondly, reduce your sugar, uh, added sugar to, to your diet, um, more sleep and more relaxed time when you're not stressed to lower your cortisol levels. So a whole lot of things you can do lifestyle-wise that can reduce the inflammatory provocation on an existing cancer. So the book is about what a man can do to stay on active surveillance until he dies of something else, uh, to wow. keep him as healthy as possible so he never has to have prostate cancer treatment because it's not the prostate cancer that makes you incontinent yeah. or has erectile dysfunction. It's the treatment. <sighs> and if you can avoid the treatment and just live with it, comfortably in a serene space so you're not stressed all the time about having it then one it's less likely to progress and secondly you're going to have a better quality of life and the quality of life difference between men with prostate cancer who have treatment and men who have prostate cancer and don't have treatment is huge just huge just you know the, just the sheer act of being incontinent and, and impotent increases the incidence of anxiety and depression and suicide ideation multiple levels and wow. don't see that as a quality of life so excuse my ignorance because I because I don't treat men with prostate cancer or prostate issues, I assumed your book was about pelvic floor exercises. So it's not just or it's the first one is. Oh, the first so, one is. Yes, but the second one. The second one will have nothing about pelvic floor exercises in it because they don't need them. They're continent. Okay. They're they're completely potent. What they need is exercise for the rest of the body. Yeah. But they need to know how much how often, what type of exercise. Men will men work much better with a defined structure. Yeah. It's not enough to say to the bloke, you need to walk 
every day yeah. for half an hour. That's not enough. That's not enough. You need to walk how hard can I have hills? And is half an hour a day the right amount, or are you just saying that to make it ego zero? But the data suggests 150 minutes a week in whatever chunks he likes to do. He can do two hours on one day and then you know the rest of it another day. It doesn't have to be spaced out. He just needs to do that much slower aerobic activity per week. And he needs to do a set number of resistance training programs to get the full benefits of resisting training program for his postural muscle care, which is also involves pelvic floor, but more importantly, is lowers the risk of prostate cancer progression. The, res, the evidence shows that. And even if he goes on to treatment, let's say he's on active surveillance and he does everything I'm going to put in this book and he does a brilliant job of looking after his health, he reduces his girth, he reduces his, his glucose uh, um, intolerance testing on um, on fasting glucose tests, so his pre-diabetic state is improved. His uh, inflammatory markers go down. His liver function improves. All that's good, and his prostate cancer still gets a bee in its bonnet and progresses to the point of treatment. He will go into his surgery or radiotherapy in a much healthier state, a much fitter, stronger state than he would have otherwise. So his chance of recovering from the treatment is improved as well. So, and you said that originally the, the first book and maybe the second book were designed for people who weren't seeing an, another, weren't seeing a physiotherapy, or could at least manage their um, yeah. manage their program kind of by themselves. If they were hesitant about seeing anybody, they could pick up the book and be able to, you know, work on themselves without mm. seeing a health professional. But you are no, you're not a clinician anymore, or are you are um, you still treating no. people? No, I don't. I don't uh, work in the clinic anymore. I I teach uh, and I and I run the, the Martians mastering the Martians courses and I teach a lot outside of the physio thing as well in in other areas of continent urological nursing and continent nurses and uh, so yeah I'm not actually clinically working anymore. I've retired from that, but I'm still very enthusiastic about the next generation of physiotherapists and making sure they have got the best set of tools possible that I never had, and they will take this men's health to another place, way beyond where I'm working, uh, and that's going to be fabulous to see as well. The, But I'll pass on what I've learned and let that go. But there are a lot of men who will never have access to a pelvic floor physio, and particularly a pelvic floor physio who treats men. They may not yeah. want to go. They may not be in their geographical area. They may not even know they exist, or nor does their referring GPs or, or urologists have access to them. So the book is doesn't replace a professional, but it can work really well alongside the professionals if they've got them. And if they don't have a professional, they've at least got something in their hand that can coach them through and, uh, and there's an app coming as well for that, but uh, oh, that'll be another excellent. week to wait. Yes, so a pelvic floor training program for men in their phone um, that reminds them to do it and also gives them a, a tool of how to do it and how to uh, hold and breathe and what they should be feeling as they do the exercise on a, on a regular daily reminder. So we're trying to take that out and put it in, in the hand. And this is e-medicine, digital medicine. Is you know There's, there's lots of things out there. They're not all evidence-based. Uh, unfortunately, but there's a lot of people with with products in the marketplace trying to take healthcare to to where men look for information. Yeah, and I think it would be so helpful too because, like you said, there's there's not a lot of pelvic floor physios that deal with this issue with men, and especially there's not a lot of men pelvic floor physios working in this area. And as much as I know some amazing women who are clinicians who work with this issue with men, I still feel, I'm not a man, so maybe I'm wrong, but that maybe as a man with an issue in that area that, I don't know, do you not feel like you would maybe feel more comfortable <laughs> with a man at some point, or especially the younger men? Yeah, um, I think I think that's true. I think men men can talk bloke. A bit better than that, and that's sort of a shared social construct. They've been both been socialised in a similar way. The I don't think the success of pelvic floor physiotherapy for men depends on the gender of the therapist. No. I think females can be excellent men's health physios, and Joe Milios in Perth is yes. a, a perfect example of that. But there are others, Shan Morrison, and, and you know many many others here and overseas that are really brilliant at it. Yeah, but I think we still need to men and and I was. So excited when we ran the Mastering the Martians last weekend in Brisbane. Out of 30 participants, 50% were male. Really? Oh, that's so good. 
male. And the first time we ran it four years ago, we had 40 participants, of which three were male. So each time we've run it every uh, eight to nine months, there has been an increasing percentage of men coming along to, to learn about men's health. So we are tapping into that uh, for men are getting interested in, in this side of the practice. Um, so that's good. Uh, and that's just been through evolution. It hasn't been that we've specifically marketed to men, but they yeah. realize that this is something we can get involved with and we've got something to offer as much as uh, female therapists. Um, so that, uh, that would be great if that continues through the uh, pelvic health pathway of uh, professional development that the Physio Association here in Australia is developing. Yeah, as inclusive of the male interest as well. Mm. Yeah, and again, I don't discredit any of the amazing women that are treating men because clinically they are wonderful. I just always wonder as a woman, I'm like, wouldn't a man, you know, would they, would that rapport and filter be easier when they are with another man dealing with a penis? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there are a lot of female therapists who don't want to work with men's health, a lot of men who don't want to work in they're not comfortable with it. But the gentleman who comes through having had prostate surgery, there's not much they haven't been exposed to in yeah. terms of discussions and interventions and indignities that you can add there in physiotherapy. So there's not much left to surprise them with. So they are pretty open by the time they get to us. Um, and if you can sh demonstrate mastery of the topic and the ability to communicate the topic and that you're relaxed with it, um, and can get into that blokey head of joking about some things, but actually this part's really serious, yeah. then they will respect you as a female practitioner equally equally well. No problem, yes. Perfect. And you were saying um, in some emails that we had that, you know, you, you had said that you weren't the typical pelvic floor physio that does internal work, but I feel like in the men's health world there has been a, a move back towards using ultrasound in order to help assess and treat for um, male incontinence. So that is that something you're teaching as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I outsource that. Stuart Baptist from Sydney runs our ultrasound training okay. on the Martians, and he is an extremely accomplished practitioner with the real-time ultrasound. Um, I can use it, but I have never used it often enough to become a master of it. Yeah. Uh, but the I, I, it is the gold standard for motor training mm. for men, for yep. getting them the visual, the visual uh, link between the moving of the pelvic floor and the internal sensations of trying to make it move. So in terms of teaching them a new skill, which is what pelvic floor training is or any muscle training, is teaching them a new skill, it is a really, really valuable tool to, to use. Um, but they can't take it home with them. Yeah. They need to do their training with some other cues and skills. Uh, so as well as teaching them the skill set, now they need to, once they've got it, what does it feel like internally when I do it? And what can I feel in my perineum or what can I see happening with my, my penis and scrotum happening as I do the exercise correctly as I've just been taught and make sure he's monitoring those external palpations and, and visual signs at home and sensations so that he actually goes home and trains the same way as he did on the ultrasound. Because it's terribly disappointing when he does it beautifully on the ultrasound and then goes home and next time he comes back in, he can't demonstrate the same pattern again Yeah. because he went home and practiced it incorrectly. And this applies to any exercise we give any patient. As soon as they leave the clinic, unless the tuition has been good and the paperwork's good and the diagrams or the videos or whatever we send them home with, and they rely on them and refer back to them, they will reinvent an exercise very quickly to suit themselves. Yeah. Yes, and they typically don't make it any more difficult. They make it easier and yeah. sometimes totally irrelevant. So that's a bit sad. So it's a great teaching tool for them to master the skill, but then we still need the training, monitoring, and training tools. And that's where the book comes into play, yeah. uh, the Prostate Recovery uh, Men's Action Plan. The physio teaches them the ultrasound and gives them all the other stuff. And then if they have the book as well, and Jo Milios does this. She, she, Every guy that comes through her clinic, she does the ultrasound work with him and then sends him home with the book. So, okay, now when you're doing it at home, this is what you're trying to accomplish. Read these chapters here, um, and that's how you'd practice at home. And when we see you in a week or so, we'll just check your technique, make sure you're still doing it correctly, take you to the next level. Yeah, so. yeah nice. And so Mastering the Martians, um, we just missed it in Brisbane. Just uh, missed it. Just missed it. But is that, so if people want to learn more about this area and how to communicate with men and how to treat men in this area, is that kind of probably, I guess, in Australia, is that one of the 
main courses or best ways to learn? Um, oh, I, w- I would think so. We <laughs> In an unbiased a, view. <laughs> well, it's, there's not much competition yet. Yeah. There will be, I'm sure. And that's, that's just how things go. But we have, we have four teachers. We have myself on the communication and the conservative management of continence treatment. We've got Stuart teaching real-time ultrasound with practical work on the machines and getting people to demonstrate and for guys on the course to actually have their pelvic floor assessed in real time so they get the feeling of what it does. And a lot of physios just assume they'll be able to do it, but it turns out they can't. They need to learn the skill. Um, Joe talks a lot about erectile dysfunction retraining and as well as continence as well as group fitness training for men to to uh, take them into a uh, when they're less their needs are less acute and it's more in a maintenance program and Peter Dornan uh, would come along and talk about the mechanical aspects of pelvic pain and putendal nerve uh, lesions etc that can cause erectile and continence dysfunction so we cover four different angles of practice it's not everything about men's health but it's yeah. a lot over two days yes yeah it's a and very good grounding how many uh, what are you doing any more this year this year is almost finished no, no we have none others scheduled at the moment it's, it's hard to get these four together in the same yeah. country with a bit of time um, yeah but the the I, I think we should keep running it but it will depend on where the australian physio association thinks yeah. it fits into their professional development program whether they're happy to keep sponsoring it for us yeah Okay, it's so, it's, so it's up in the time. air, and we don't know if you're doing any um, next year. And yes, so we won't probably know till the end of the year whether it's going to run again. Okay, I hope it does, but uh, I'll let you know, Laurie, if it's happening. Yeah. You can your your listenership uh, know in some way. Yeah. That would be it. Would be so lovely, and it was always on my list just to learn more. Again, it's not my big population, but then when I started doing some research, that's unrelated and taking up my time I now have to be really choosy <laughs> about where my time goes and unfortunately I won't be able to do that yet but um, yeah I'm yeah. so happy that you could share your time today is there anything else that you wanted to add oh no I think we've covered enough for people to think about at this stage <laughs> um, and and uh, we, we're dealing with a population of, of physical therapists and physiotherapists who are highly intelligent and really well trained um, and all they need to do is make sure that they respect the communication barriers of their patients and take a little bit of extra care and time to work through them, keep the filters open so that, that fabulous knowledge base that we've got can actually benefit our client base. And uh, we do that, we're, we're doing our due your care. Mm. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.